Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode is technically a bonus episode because we already had one for March, but March has five weeks instead of four, so I thought I'd throw another entry in here. This continues the Darren Aronofsky series, a little mini-series that I began earlier in the month, and will continue into next month with three of his films, part of a season where I'm covering several films by different directors. Uh, so the previous episode was on Pi, and actually it's worth mentioning um, the episodes I ran in January and February because those were on The Piano and Holy Smoke by the director Jane Campion. And I chose those uh, to highlight those months because uh, they were recorded years earlier for patrons, but I uh, knew that the piano was going to be added to the Criterion Collection in January, so I thought, oh, good timing for that. Really didn't know much about her new film, uh, Power of the Dog, which I haven't seen yet, but she won Best Director for that at the Oscars uh, just uh, last night before I'm recording this, a few days ago when you're hearing it. So that was a nice coincidence. So I highlighted her work earlier this year and uh, timed out well with that. So check out the discussions on the piano in January and Holy Smoke in February for more Jane Campion. The Holy Smoke one is actually a discussion where I had guests on, Em and Steve from the No Ship Network, to discuss that film. So that was uh, fun to revisit in that context. Uh, Before we get to the main episode, just want to highlight my work uh, elsewhere online. Uh, On my other podcast feeds, I covered the film Peyton Place, for Twin Peaks Cinema, comparing that film to the show and film and related media of Twin Peaks. This was part of a small town blues series that I'm doing for that podcaster that I just wrapped, actually, where I focus on three classic films about small towns with dark secrets underneath. Obviously, a strong comparison point to Twin Peaks there with that theme. On YouTube, I posted a Twin Peaks Conversations number eight. Uh, it's audio only, but it's a uh, interview with the authors of Twin Peaks in the TV Milestones book series, uh, Julie Grossman and Will Scheibel. So that was a great discussion. We dug into a lot of stuff in that part of the discussion. I sort of emphasized how we talk about noir and the femme fatale in the title for it. And uh, we continued those and other aspects of the conversation on my Patreon. For $5 a month patrons, they can hear the exclusive part two of that conversation with Julie and Will. And for the dollar a month patrons, I posted a uh, kind of catch-all podcast this month, Uh, actually several episodes split it up. So I did film and TV capsules and also political reflections. So the subjects included the film Don't Look Up, uh, the war in Ukraine going on right now, obviously, and the state of the left as I see it, a lot of podcast recommendations, and then films uh, The Hunt, the Olympic documentaries I'd been watching. I talked about some random subjects as well, the group Mazzy Star from the 90s and uh, the recent Super Bowl and how both of those tied in with generational youth zeitgeists and a documentary called The Civil War, Who Do We Think We Are?, which was probably more about the reconstruction legacy in education. Uh, some interesting tie-ins there with all the critical race theory, um, culture war stuff going on. So I touched on that. And then also just short films like The Three Stooges, Disney, and uh, their legacy with dealing with disturbing fairy tales, uh, some surrealist shorts I saw, a nature film called Alone in the Wilderness, sort of a nature film about a guy built a cabin out in Maine, uh, Rick Steves' documentary on the Holy Lands, the Hill Street Blues final season, comparisons between Jimmy Carter and Joe Biden, the conservative mood right now in the country, and uh, why I felt I was taking a sort of a political pause. And in addition to all of that uh, grab bag catch-all of topics that I discussed, 
I also read my old review of The Wolf of Wall Street from several years ago as part of my archive reading series. So that and more uh, is on the Patreon for a dollar a month patrons. On my site, I finally concluded after four years the Mad Men viewing diary with season seven, episode 14, person to person, great finale episode that I uh, really enjoyed digging into probably one of my longer reviews on the series. So check that out there. Uh, Links for all of these, of course, uh, in the show notes, unless I run out of space in which I'll just uh, link to the, uh, uh, a page where you can on, on my site where you can click on all these links. So, uh, in addition on my site, I also cross posted the March patron podcast, the twin peaks conversations, and I updated my picture gallery and top posts pages. So a page where I have images, striking images from all my work updated with a bunch of recent, um, visual, uh, you know, recent pictures that I'd used for various posts. And then the top posts, uh, just selecting what I think is my stronger work on the site, added some recent additions to that, including some of the Mad Men entries. Okay, so that's it. Lot to catch up with there, but uh, it's been a busy month or two. And uh, now on to Requiem for a Dream. The most controversial film of the year is also the one critics are calling the best film of the year. I love you, Mary. Requiem for a Dream is furiously brilliant. Naturally. A thrilling, stylish, and hypnotic film. I like thinking about the red dress and the television. Now when I get the sun, I smile. From Darren Aronofsky, the director of Pi, Requiem for a Dream. That's an interesting uh, TV teaser for Requiem for a Dream to listen to, mostly because it doesn't play the famous music. I thought that was kind of striking and uh, wanted to use that both to be slightly perverse because ironically the Requiem for a Dream soundtrack has been used in numerous huge trailers for years after this film came out Lord of the Rings being the most famous where uh, you know they actually played that central theme to showing the battle scenes in the trailers um, which is quite a quite a trip from Requiem for a Dream to like Return of the King but um, so it's funny that, you know, on this TV advertisement at the time, they didn't even use that most iconic element of, of this film, which even people who don't even know what Requiem for a Dream is have probably heard that music uh, because of its use elsewhere. But it's also interesting to hear and sort of see how the film was presented in some context at the time. Like, I think the ad is a little bit less aggressive and sort of more, a little softer in a way than the film itself, of course. Requiem for a Dream tells a story of four people, four addicts, um, addicted to various substances, although primarily in the case of three of the characters, heroin, and in the case of one of the characters, who's the main character's mother, uh, speed, specifically diet pills that are prescribed to her by a doctor. But throughout that, there's a lot of other substances shown, um, cocaine, um, various pills, uh, food itself, and television as well, and they're all photographed the same way. So they have the characters, like for example, Ellen Burstyn, who plays the mother in her 60s, living alone on a big apartment. In, well, not a, a big apartment building, not a very not a very big apartment in uh, Coney Island. When she turns on the TV, it's the shot of the hand clicking the remote. Everything in uh, these isolated, iconic close-ups, really fast cuts. If you've seen the movie, you know exactly what I'm describing. Maybe if you haven't, hopefully that's that's clear enough. But basically, Aronofsky will focus on all of these isolated objects and just cut them real fast together and, and create a connection between them. This is 
one of the most stylistically bold films of the time, I mean, of all time, really. It has a very distinct style based on the cutting, I would say, primarily, although it's shot in very specific ways as well. There's a lot of use of split screen, cross-cutting between the different locations and and people framed in the exact same way to, to create those similarities. And the music played such a huge part as well in cultivating the the feel of the film. The trajectory of the movie follows Harry and Tyrone, two friends who become drug dealers. Um, They start off as addicts and then they're selling and getting a lot more money and everything seems to be going well. Harry's in love with Marion, who's a daughter of wealthy parents, but very sort of disaffected and alienated from them. Doesn't feel loved by them. And uh, her and Harry are very close and she's opening, wants to open up a clothing store for her designs, a boutique, I guess. You know, things seem to be going somewhat well for them in the first part of the movie, although you can sort of already see the writing on the wall. And then it just all goes downhill as there's a drug war that emerges in Brooklyn where they live and they try to go to Florida to get more drugs and Harry's arms become infected and Marion has to start sleeping around, going to see these um, pushers who will only sell to young women who have sex with them or attend their sex parties. In Florida, Harry gets his arm amputated and Tyrone is thrown in a prison and he's black. So there's all of the, you know, they're somewhere in the southern states and he's just getting harassed and in going into withdrawal in the prison. And through all of this, Sarah Goldfarb has her own separate storyline, Harry's mother, played by Ellen Burstyn. And by the way, Harry's played by Jared Leto, Marion's played by Jennifer Connelly, and Tyrone's played by Marlon Wayans. It's a pretty great cast. And uh, throughout this film, Sarah is enamored of the idea that she's going to be on TV. She watches these ridiculous self-help infomercials and imagines herself there, and she gets a letter in the... Or she gets a phone call and then a little survey in the mails probably part of some scam where they're telling her she's going to be on a TV show or something and uh or they just want her in the pool of people or I don't I'm not never quite figured out exactly what's going what their angle is there. She thinks she's going to be on TV and her husband's dead now and she takes the dress out that he her husband always loved and she can't fit into it anymore. So she starts taking these diet pills and then she starts taking too many and she just has a breakdown by the end of the film and ends up getting shock treatment. Her friends come see her and she's just vacant and tormented and they're crying in the parking lot. So the film just ends on this note of all these characters curling up in a fetal position and trying to imagine their escape, whatever that may be. The story takes us over the course of three seasons. The first longest section is called Summer. Then there's a somewhat shorter section called Fall. And then the shortest section at the very end is Winter, where everything is just kind of packed into, I want to say, probably less than 10 or 15 minutes of screen time. At that point, everything really accelerates. The cutting accelerates to the end of the film. This was Darren Aronofsky's second film, his sophomore effort. It has those marks of the film where the first film is very scrappy, maybe a little bit messy, but, you know, it shows vision, it shows promise, and the director is given a bit more budget, gets to work with some bigger actors and trying a more ambitious idea, and oftentimes, you know, if they're really hungry and they're really on track, they just knock it out of the park, and this is an example of that. I enjoyed rewatching Pi, and there's a lot of interesting things in that, but I think Requiem for a Dream is kind of on another level, and for years, this was one of my absolute favorite movies. I would list it on my, like, top 100 films or whatever back 
when I was like in my late teens, early 20s, shortly after it came out. And then I remember I saw it maybe 10 years ago at this point, but a while later after I hadn't watched it for a little while, I thought, I don't know, you know, it is a little heavy handed. It's maybe some of the novelty, I guess, wore off of, uh, of the style and just how jarring it was on that first viewing. There really, I mean, there wasn't that much like this at the time. It was coming out of a lot of innovations, in some cases going way back, you know, I mean, you can go back to the 20s and find people using these techniques in avant-garde films. Certainly in recent 90s cinema, you know, since Tarantino and stuff, there'd been this more aggressive Gen X, these Gen X filmmakers coming up and getting a little bolder with what they were willing to use. By seven or eight years later, became somewhat used to that, I think. At that point, this aggressive uh, presentation extended not just to films on the cutting edge but to more mainstream films even to tv commercials and stuff like that and to begin with some of it came out of music videos as well so it's not like it hadn't been around for a while in other forms when that aspect wore off i don't know maybe it's a bit heavy-handed maybe it's a the characters in a way are a bit one note and it sort of dropped off a little bit for me i was still obviously deeply impressed by the filmmaking but i thought maybe it's not up there. After this most recent viewing, though, I think I was probably overcorrected a bit and was too harsh on that follow-up years later because it really is a powerful film and it's a deep film. There is, yes, it's flashy as hell and maybe some sometimes that might go a little overboard, but uh, I think for the most part it's tailored to the characters. I want to say the characters more than the theme because I think another issue sometimes with this film is it gets pegged as like okay, yeah, it's an art film, but it's just an art film anti-drug propaganda. It's like a scared straight movie with like a high budget and an artistic bent or something. And I think that's oversimplifying as well. Yes, obviously addiction is a subject, drugs are a subject of it, and it certainly doesn't paint the results of that in a uh, complimentary light. And, you know, more importantly, because I think most people would agree that a lot of times it, it can't be painted in complimentary light, but it stacks the deck. I mean, you have this closing montage where everything's happening to all these people simultaneously. It's like the worst stuff imaginable, like one of them being amputated, one of them being trapped in a racist jail, one of them being just brutally objectified by all of these screaming yuppies in some loft somewhere and then the other one now basically in an asylum all alone with her hair sticking out and the doctors don't care and are just wheeling her around and all this so it's like it does lend itself to that reading of being over the top in that sense it's much more about where that need comes from or not so much where that need come from because i don't think they it analyzes causes that much but showing the need itself before it's satisfied or whatever by the drugs and uh, i think that's important i think this is more a film about the sadness that all of these characters feel and hints of where that comes from and yes the drugs are there as a solve and they have disastrous results maybe i'm being over generous i don't think like gee if the characters never did drugs their lives yes their lives would be better than how they end up for sure but their lives wouldn't be where they would want them to be or where they would need them to be i think i think there's more going on than that also as a follow-up to Aronofsky's debut, you can see that, look, my, I got a big canvas now type of thing. He brings back so many actors from Pi and he gives them smaller parts because now he's got movie stars that he can put in there, Ellen Burstyn and Jennifer Connelly. And, you know, Marlon Wayans, too. I mean, this is he's he's excellent in this in this film, in this part. And uh, of course, he's known primarily up to this point, And I feel like since just as a broad comedy actor, he does a great job in this. And then Jared Leto, too. 
he's somebody I think a lot of people have become kind of frustrated with him in recent years because he plays up this whole aspect of I'm this out there edgy method actor I send my co-stars dead rats and things because I'm crazy like the Joker man first of all this is a suicide squad this is a terrible movie that you're doing this for this is not like some art project you know and he just has that kind of vibe about him of like just people want to roll their eyes So this is much earlier in his career, and I don't think there's like a whiff of that kind of self-importance in this. It's a very open, human, sympathetic performance that really anchors the film well. So then to support these people, Aronofsky brings in a lot of the familiar faces from Pi. He's got the main actor playing this creepy, smarmy psychiatrist who takes advantage of the Jennifer Connelly character. He's got the nice girl who lived upstairs. Um, She comes in as like a nurse in this film. The neighbor from Pi, the nice woman who, for some totally inexplicable reason, is just always trying to be kind to the main character, even though he's a dick to her, which is one of those independent film conventions, I feel like, where you have this misanthropic, unlikable male character, and there's a beautiful woman who's just like, can I give you attention? That was kind of a cliche. I forgot to mention that in the Pi review. I read something in the Wikipedia article about Pi that said she was just a hallucination, and the end of the film reveals that when she's embracing him and then she's not there. I, I didn't get that. I missed that. But maybe that's the case. It would explain a little bit. So anyway, she's in this movie, too, in a small part. And then in the opening, when he goes to the pawn guy, gives his mother's TV so he can get money for drugs that character is played by the mentor guru figure in pi as well they're all in here and i think this was an important film not just within aronofsky's career but maybe more broadly as well throughout the 90s you have all these directors who are making these offbeat low budget films the indie film economy basically off to the side some of them come into the film industry and get bigger budgets but this feels like one of the key films where you had a filmmaker who started on that level and got something that is itself just as offbeat and unusual and bold and innovative as any of those smaller films but on a bigger scale and getting broader attention and it was directly after this film that Aronofsky got signed on to be involved with the Dark Knight movies and then of course eventually those didn't come to pass the project redeveloped with Christopher Nolan instead I remember eagerly anticipating that for years I'm not sure if it was called Dark Knight at that point but it was basically a reboot of the Batman franchise going back to his origin I think Batman Year Zero that's what it was called right I'm sure plenty of listeners know that history better than I do this launched Aronofsky to that level because it already is itself I mean this is a big movie in a lot of ways yes it's got a small cast it's not terribly super complicated in terms of special effects although it does have some pretty intense effects and digital manipulation and stuff going on at at one point and even some It seems like even some puppetry. The fridge is a terrifying Muppet movie on acid or something. The refrigerator that opens up and tries to attack her. So it feels like this film is of that whole Generation X uh, squadron of directors moving from the margins into the mainstream. And they're the last ones who got that opportunity, as I've said before. Today, 15 years later, somebody like... uh, critic like Richard Brody will say, gee, you know, cinema isn't as bad off as people say. Look at these directors uh, like Wes Anderson or like Terrence Malick who are able to get these budgets and do these things and stuff. It's like, well, yeah, they're they're from previous generation. Aronofsky and Coppola and the others are some of the younger ones, but they're all in their late 40s now. So they passed through the last window of opportunity. At the time, I thought Aronofsky was the most promising and exciting of these directors. I think later I moved more toward preferring Sofia Coppola overall, but 
at this point, I looked at Requiem for a Dream and I said, the others are, they're all great directors, all of them. P.T. Anderson, too, who I had a little more trouble with than, than a lot of my peers for whatever reason. But I, I recognize these are all great, great directors, truly great directors. But I felt like Requiem for a Dream was the only great film produced by them. So there was a little bit of a distinction in my mind between the work of a great director and something that's a great film in its own right. And for me, the difference with this was just the depth and the weight that it had. It wasn't just brilliantly presented. It was also presenting something fairly profound, or so I felt. This was one of my favorite films of that time. Um, it was like one of those ubiquitous movies. I mean, there was a lot. I, you know, when you're 18, 19, in like 2002, 2003, 2001, that whole time, this is going to be one of those like select films that everybody seemed to have in their DVD collection. I've mentioned before, like Memento, Fight Club, Mulholland Drive. It's sort of the cliche, Donnie Darko, sort of the cliched, like, you know, young film buff collection, basically. So I was, in this case, definitely part of that trend. And some other ones, not so much, but this was a film that just really did it for me. I remember this and Kids, oddly enough, I would watch a lot at that time. Kids, the film from 95, both these just really extreme visions of social decline and like a snapshot of these few individuals. But I found them both really powerful for somewhat overlapping and also somewhat different reasons. And I think uh, for me, what I was really looking for, and to a certain extent, this is still something I, I prize in, in cinema, is films that would take you on a trip or films that would create a world. And those aren't necessarily the same things, in some way opposite in a way. I think a film that takes you on a trip is often more singular and focused, and I would define this film as that, where it's got a real structure that it's following. There's a stylistic vision which is just total and encompassing and uh, overpowering, and it grabs you and pulls you along with it. And I think that's appealing to a lot of young people in particular. This film very much evokes an era for me, that era of the early 2000s. Just in terms of its aesthetic, in terms of its associations, in terms of, you know, sometimes the people on screen, the style, everything like that. It feels of that epoch to me. And I'd be interested to know what somebody who's like younger now, say like 20 now or something like that, if they look back and they see this as being from like another era or if it feels very current to them. Because for me, it's I know a big part of that is just the context of having watched it at that time and associating it. Like it almost kind of triggers memories of that period for me. And it's interesting because I'm a millennial, like on the older side of millennials, I guess. And it feels like, so for me, this is sort of the beginning of an era. And I think for like a Gen X viewer watching it, it might feel more like kind of the end of an era. This film culminates that 90s period of the slacker gen x aesthetic or whatever i mean the style is a big break from something like say richard linklater's slacker but in terms of coming out of like that culture if that makes sense i mean you have all these actors who are very gen x icons in a way jared leto jennifer connelly marlon wayans they're of that age and everything and so to see it from those two tail ends I mean, just to give you a sense of how, uh, how this film was of that moment or the end of that moment, there's a uh, pamphlet inside this DVD. And this, by the way, this is a DVD I've had. This is one of my earliest DVDs, maybe the third or fourth that I ever bought in 2002, probably a few months after I saw the movie for the first time. And, you know, I've, I've watched it plenty of times and uh, there's a great DVD menu where it's actually the infomercial. So you put in the DVD and it comes on and it's like the Christopher McDonald character from the infomercial just speaking to you like that's what you're watching. There's static and there's a phone number on the screen. And then the options on the DVD menu are written as if they're like options on the screen to call and get your juice motivational book. I don't even know what they're selling exactly. If it's like a drink or something, or if it's a motivational program of tapes 
or what the hell it is. But anyways, that's the DVD menu. So anyways, I've had this DVD for years, but I opened it up today after watching the movie and I looked at the pamphlet inside and I realized I don't think I'd ever read this before. So it's got two sections and just as I was saying, just to kind of show you how much of a late 90s, early 2000s product this is, the headlined review is by the now disgraced Harry Knowles of Ain't It Cool News. And, you know, it reads exactly like you would expect it to read, which is not really my favorite style of writing, where he's just wandering. There's all these ellipses. I mean, I guess I talk like that on the podcast. When I'm looking to read something, it just kind of annoys me. And he goes on this whole tangent about how Jennifer Connelly is like your girlfriend and you feel ashamed and you don't want to go to a strip club after it's like, okay, this is kind of interesting to read now. On the inside of the pamphlet, there's a foreword by Aronofsky from the book, because this is obviously, this is based on a book. It's based on a book by Hubert Selby Jr. And Aronofsky has some interesting things to say about it, which can kind of lead into my final thoughts on the film. So Aronofsky writes, the novel had amazing structure and it translated very well into three acts but something was strange. While breaking it down, I realized that whenever something good was supposed to happen to a character, something bad happened. Because of this, I couldn't figure out who the hero of the novel was. After sketching out all the character arcs, I realized that they were all upside down. So I flipped them over, and suddenly I had a Eureka. The hero wasn't Sarah, it wasn't Harry, not Tyrone, not Marion. The hero was the character's enemy. Addiction. The book is a manifesto on addiction's triumph over the human spirit. I began to look at the film as a monster movie. The only difference is that the monster doesn't have physical form. It only lives deep in the characters' heads. That's interesting for a number of reasons. I think it's just kind of a cool um, writer's note on how they conceptualize the film. I also think it plays into that more reductive reading that people sometimes have of Requiem for a Dream. Like, it's just all a big anti-drug movie. All these fireworks and all the hoopla boils down to the end of, like, kids, don't do drugs. You know, the Harry Knowles thing plays into that, too. He says, this film should be required viewing by every friggin' high school kid in the country. It should be unleashed upon them. Will it disturb them? Will it shake their fragile little minds? Will it possibly make a lifestyle change for them? Oh, God. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. This movie is brutal. Brutal in the most aggressively harsh reality moments we have in society. There's a little Harry Knowles for you. That look at it feels a little reductive. What I get much more out of it now is thinking about how the characters find themselves in this situation in the first place. Not like, okay, they got the same problems we all do, and then they take drugs, and it's that's where the real trouble begins, you know. You, you can't run away from... Okay, yes, that's true, but I'm more interested in that these problems do exist and what that means and how they'll come about and what can be done to address that. And so for me, the last thing to say is it's interesting to watch this film 18 years after it came out and at least a good 15, 16 years after I first saw it and think about it in terms of a social critique where I don't think it's mission and I don't think it's mission needs to be analyzing like root causes of alienation and and um you know depression and obviously there's you know bi biology brain chemistry circumstances beyond just sort of a socio-political analysis or anything like that but there are unavoidable components of this which are related to the system that these characters live in and don't even see and uh, for that reason i think it would be interesting it's not something i'm going to do in this episode but at some point to read about or think about a real materialist marxist critique looking at the film and talking about it in that light
That's it for this episode. The Darren Aronofsky miniseries will continue actually next week since this was a bonus where for once, instead of waiting a month, going to be jumping right into the next week to uh, continue the theme. And that will be with Aronofsky's fourth film, The Wrestler. Here's a little taste of that to take you out. What do you want from me? I'm an old broken down piece of meat and I deserve to be all alone. I just don't want you to hate me.